For many years, large incumbent companies have tried to be more like startups and failed, despite embracing leading business fads. The challenge remains, how can large complex enterprises behave like startups while maintaining resilience at scale? Greg Head, you said that starting a business has never been easier, but growing and scaling a startup is harder than ever. Most who try get stuck or hit a plateau, including so-called A players and second-time founders, funded companies, and even natural-born entrepreneurs. Can you share a particularly stark example of this digital ceiling? I've been in the software business for 30 years, so I'll take it from the startup software and tech side of things. In the 90s and even in the 2000s, it cost four to 10 million to build a first version of a software with servers and windows and software and everything. And now you can get people paying for software that you've built for 100 or 200 or half a million to get started. So it's easier to start a software and tech company than ever. And there's a little bit of a myth that if you build it, there's a problem, people need software, the answer is software, you build it, then you'll just have a growing company and it'll grow forever. That's actually not the case. Most companies that get up to a million or five million or 10 million don't get to five or 10 times bigger than that. Most companies that get investments don't get to the end game and pay off. So most companies that get on the playing field of startup to scale don't make it all the way up. And that's just the reality of where companies are these days. And making sense of SaaS, digital ceilings, and these digital runways is what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. And today we're here with Greg Head, 30-year veteran in scaling software companies. Greg is the founder of Scaling Point, helping companies grow from startup to scale by finding the unique leverage point, propelling them to the next level. He's the creator of the Scaling Point system, which has been used by hundreds of companies around the world. He's also the founder of Greg's List, a comprehensive list of local software companies, jobs, and talent spanning eight cities across North America. Greg had a successful 30-year career as a marketing leader at three startups that grew to global scale and CRM, SalesLogix, Infusionsoft, and everyone's favorite, ACT, which is one of the original CRM companies. In the spirit of giving back, Greg has used this experience to advise thousands of startup founders and tech CEOs as a consultant, advisor, mentor, and board member. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Jeff. We could talk for hours today because this is a fascinating topic from a lot of different perspectives. We'll just start off by just asking the question. You're an active volunteer advisor, mentor, and really therapist to hundreds of tech founders every year. Have you seen it all or are you still seeing new stories? Well, there's some new stories and some old stories. And uh, the trick is to figure out what's really new and does the old stuff work? And we have to keep recycling that. But generally speaking, the innovation game, which existed before tech and has expanded in the last 30 years in tech, continues to roll. There's some laws of nature in there that aren't changing that have to do with how buyers buy in their brains how markets move and how entrepreneurs think in their brains and our brains aren't changing, but the world is changing. Tactics are changing. Marketing's changing. You know, every year there's some new tricks of the trade in 2020. Some things have changed here, but the further you dig down into a company and their core issues, you're dealing with more permanent type issues. So there's a chemistry project in every uh, startup between the founder, their market, the current situation, their luck, the situation, their resources. That's a wonderful puzzle that is different every time. It's a nice play on words, Greg's list. <laughs> Let's dive right in. Those eight North American cities, you're not focusing on Silicon Valley. So because we talk about where you've gotten to with, with this whole cataloging and indexing of these SaaS companies. 
So it actually started in Phoenix, where I spent 23 years, uh, mostly in fast-growing software companies. And five years ago, I, after the, the last one, I grew two companies to 100 million in Phoenix and one more before that. You know, I just started helping all my friends who are running software companies. And outside Silicon Valley, in Dallas and Atlanta, and even Austin, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, people say there's not much going on in software. You have to go to Silicon Valley. Uh, for software and venture funding. And it's certainly a different place. I've lived there, worked there. There's a lot going on in Silicon Valley, but there's also a ton going on outside of Silicon Valley in regular cities in between New York and San Jose, San Francisco. So in every city, there are software companies. And these are not just software services companies or companies that use software. These are companies that make their business in the commercial software industry. Phoenix, nobody thought there was much going on in software other than a couple of companies we grew up. But actually, over the last few years, I found over 600 software companies there. And so, and I became the connector. Hey, investors, you know, uh, investors were asking me to connect them and founders to investors and job seekers and so forth. So I just published the list as a volunteer project and a public service to the community of the software freaks that I knew, the entrepreneurs, because they were all saying, where's the money, where's the talent? And everybody was doing that. So now it's actually up to 11 cities, three cities here in Texas, Dallas, Austin, and Houston. Yeah, Silicon Valley is still king, but there's a lot more going on outside Silicon Valley. And for you know, example, there's 650 software companies in Phoenix, Arizona that employ 50,000 people. More people are employed in the software industry in Arizona than in the golf industry. You just can't see them. They don't have their names on their buildings yet. Can you characterize any differences in philosophies from these founders who aren't in Silicon Valley or are there some common threads? Yeah, there are some common threads in Dallas, Phoenix and Denver, Chicago that are, are different than Silicon Valley. And each one of those cities has hot startups that are growing fast, becoming big brand names and getting classic venture capital funding. But that's a small minority. And so the difference is outside of Silicon Valley, a few things are happening. There's a lot of B2B software companies that are bootstrapping, getting into revenues without raising capital. And over 50% of companies, the 5,000 companies on Greg's List at gregslist.com in those cities, those 10 cities outside Silicon Valley, don't have outside funded. And something around 63% have no funding or light funding from angels. So VC funding, the traditional high growth game, which is still valid and still works, is actually for a minority of uh, software companies, even after the startup stage. So another trend I would say that makes that possible, bootstrapping and capital efficiency to grow, is industry focus, which wasn't a thing in Silicon Valley. But in the last 10 years, half of the companies, uh, software companies on Greg's list are industry focused, just for healthcare, just for veterinary just for software companies. And so they're easier to get up and running and to grow efficiently in their more narrowed markets. So that would be one thing. I think there's more practical growth aspirations and that's completely, completely valid. It doesn't have to be Zoom and something universal and horizontal to be successful for founders and the customers that they serve. Yeah, it's almost like it's the the adulthood of the software industry. All these mature niches start to profitable niches that might not make someone rich immediately or, or grow quickly, and yet they're good, viable businesses. Yeah, I would argue that everything started as a niche. Video conferencing and podcasting started in the corner, and now it's universal. 
But I would argue that the best way for entrepreneurs to create wealth is to fight a battle they can win in a market that they know well and do it with efficient capital. I see more founders reaching true wealth through focused markets and capital efficiency than I see currently through uh, it's for everybody in the broad horizontal market with aggressive venture capital funding. And, you know, for the first 20, I, I spent my years in the venture funded software industry. That was the way you did it. You couldn't do it really any other way. But there is a, another way. And in, in many ways, it's the better way to wealth for founders than overfunding. You know, it reminds me of a book called The Millionaire Next Door. Shattered the myth of the classic, very wealthy person, you know, with the Rolls Royce, or the private jets or the, the, these trappings of wealth. You'd find that the average millionaire actually had a Ford F-150 or they, they had a certain lifestyle or they were in a house for a long time. So it's interesting over time if we see that these software leaders are no longer the Jack Dorsey type of folks and you more have this um, breaking the stereotype. The stereotype is actually wrong. It's just the survivor bias and the media coverage. We only hear about the ones that go public and that everybody uses and so forth. We don't hear about the little guys who are probably making, on average, they actually have better odds of making wealth for their founders. We just don't hear about them. Uh, successful companies in every niche of the software industry. And by the way, everything started in a niche, whether it was operating systems or the rest. So I think the VC industrial complex, meaning media and the conferences and everything, have wrongly told founders, there's one way to do it. You have an idea, you get angel seed funding, series A, series B, venture funding, and that's the way you do it. It's actually the way that 10% of software companies do it. And it has to have certain dynamics, a certain founder, a certain market, a certain timing, certain culture to make that game go right. And that's not the right game for most software companies. So knowing what growth game to play and how to play it, there's actually more options now than there ever were. Are you involved in the so-called crossing the chasm phase? Or is it even before that where they're trying to get to the point where they're at the chasm? I mostly deal with new category creators or they're moving around an existing category. It's not another one of those for the same crowd another way, right? Adding to the pile, they're kind of first to the race or, you know, subdividing a segment of that race. So they're playing the category game and that product adoption curve, crossing the chasm and so forth. And I know Jeff Morey was on the board of Infusionsoft and I read his book dozens of times in the 90s and realized that the sports changed there. But I actually deal with both. I have conversations every week with founders that are mentor conversations with founders that are getting on the field, starting their game, thinking about an idea, getting into market and so forth. On my consulting and advising side, I help companies that are probably between one and 10 million where the game changes. You're shifting from startup experiments to building the scalable factory. And that's where investors may or may not come in, but that's the turn there. So I'm dealing with both. You know, in the early stage, it's my whiteboard against theirs uh, when they're just starting up. So I give them practical ideas and tell them a little bit of what's headed down the pike and connect them up to the right folks. But the problem changes once you've got 20 employees, 50 employees, investors, multiple markets, big competitors, and you're making the turn between a newfangled idea and something that looks normal in your market. So you and I are old enough to know that most of the things we're dealing with now that are technology didn't exist 20 years ago, and they all went through the same process. That's a law of nature. It cannot be defied. When it, it's a brand new thing, your mom doesn't use it yet. It starts in the corners and it goes out from there. And so you could argue that one of the things I do is help companies 
across the chasm, go from crazy startup idea that's used by just the freaks in the corner of a market to something that's more mainstream and scalable. As in some research, it turns out just around you know, upstate New York, there were 300 camera companies early in the century, you know, last century. And it's just amazing whether it's that, whether it's radios, whether it's the automotive, the sheer number of companies that quickly consolidated through acquisitions or people going out of business. And uh, as you're looking at companies, what are the critical success factors to get from that 20 employee, million or two of revenue to go to that next level? What is it that allows you to get to that next level where a lot of companies fail? Well, in the startup world, they don't have the complexities of big business and they really don't in software and tech. Uh, they don't have a lot of operations yet. So it isn't the scale and brute force and operations excellence of big companies yet. And it may or may not be funding. So the ones that uh, in an early stage of a market, there's an explosion of little guys. And then when the markets are mainstream, there's few. There's the number one, two, and three. That's the law of nature. Happens in every market. Politics, music, uh, food, consumer products, tech, business to business, and everything else. So in that turn, they actually have to go from selling to friends and running the experiments and doing things that don't scale, which is creative art that is required, but you know it's not what you do. They have to go to a more marketing-driven business, meaning customers are lining up. There's a repeatable flow of customers, and it's a completely different game, but they actually have to make the shift there. And so how do you market something that's newfangled? Well, you get the flywheel going, but you know, you have to go up the stairs, you know, to get people to line up for things that they didn't line up for before. So that's kind of a magic trick there. The second thing is in tech and in any startups, the product has to be amazing enough to create the momentum that this new thing that people didn't use before do. We get excited about it, whether it's electric cars or quinoa or you know, it plays out in the political arenas as well. It starts in the corners and that product market fit, which is not just product and market. It's amazing for a small company and that amazing excitement explosion, the fireworks coming out of that corner is part of the required acceleration from companies to go from it's a newfangled thing to everybody's doing it. It actually has to be amazing enough. And so product market fit is underestimated probably by about 10 times. You think if you got a product and you got some salespeople, you could do it. Well, everybody's got that. The bar is much higher. Product market fit. You know, I go back just for a second to the first one. You said they have to climb up the stairs and get people lined up. Does that follow the product market fit? You're kind of adjusting as you go. One of the most difficult things, and it's completely not obvious, is when you get out in a market and start a new podcast, uh, you get something out there and you have a multiple audience, you're trying to find somebody to sell to and make payroll and do all that. So you actually kind of run your experiment set pretty wide. But the growth game is, ironically, when you narrow in and double down on the group that is the most excited, gets the most value, tells their friends the most, and so forth. So that's a universal magic trick that happens in every single growth company. The beginning of Infosys, you know, was a bunch of experiments. And then it's mega growth years was pretty much doubling down on one or two categories, just like Amazon could have put anything in a box and they looked at it, but it was just books. So that acceleration gets people to line up. And if you look at things that people are lining up for now that they didn't line up for a few years ago, we look around and say, is that product really amazing? Is it really true? Uh, we're very skeptical about the new things we add to our list. 
and we all wait till the water is fine, and then we jump in at whatever level is appropriate to us. So yes, product market fit and those stair stepping of the changing of tactics. It's you know it's a complicated dance. That's the part of the startup game more so than building code or operational or just add funding. That's actually the most critical factor in it. I didn't hear you talk about talent or people finding the next level to help you. What, what about the people side of things? Before operations, there's people. So startups are more about the people than the process or the scale, their operational excellence and so forth. It's that kind of artistic, you know, mad science experiment. Talent is really important. And it's one of the things that founders told me when I was in Phoenix. One of the reasons I created Greg's List, they're saying, I need a VP of sales who's done auto software at this size. Do you know anybody, right? So uh, talent's a really important part of it, starting with the founder. They kind of have to be built for the game they're playing, and then they find other people around them that can help them uh, solve the whole problem. So I do a lot of connection between talent. We promote jobs and talent on Greg's list. And you have to find people who are similarly crazy to you to say, gosh, I totally see this. I think the world should change. I'll join in. I'm best at this. I'll help you over here. And it's part of the chemistry experiment that's happening in uh, startups. There's talent everywhere. So there's not as much engineering talent or experienced startup talent in Kansas City as there is in Silicon Valley, but there's still talent everywhere. By the way, Silicon Valley, I was there in the 90s. You know, we were all making new talent happen. It didn't exist before and we grew it. So you can grow talent and find it. Talent's still important and it's interesting how it changes as you grow. Looping back a little bit, I want to cover one more thing on the whole getting the VC versus your cash flow. Another way of looking at it is the, the money coming in. You know, we both grew up in, in, in a world where you shrink wrap software and sent it. You know, now we're in the SaaS model, software as a service, or any X is a service, anything is a service. Does that make it easier to be successful in software, harder, or does, you know, does it change the mindset to more of a cash flow than the other? Can you talk about what SaaS means? Yeah, SaaS is the recurring revenue business model. So there's a business model now with business-to-business -business software and a lot of consumer software where it's paid for by the month as opposed to paid for upfront, which was 90s when you bought packaged software and paid for upfront when you licensed business software, Microsoft servers and things like that. Now it's AWS, you pay by the drink or it's salesforce.com, you pay per user per month, per features and so forth. So it's fundamentally changed the mindset of the software industry as opposed to sell it and see you later. A business cannot grow unless customers are happy. A SaaS software, software as a service, business cannot grow unless companies, their customers are happy and continuing to pay them and stay. And generally speaking, buying more. You do not have a growth business if you can sell somebody and they don't stay in the SaaS business. So the incentive now is to get happy customers, get them using the software, getting to a value that's extraordinary and expand on that. So kind of change from the, the model from the front end of selling first, where all the power was to in the modern SaaS software, it's the product and the experience and the customer success that's the biggest thing. And so... Uh, sales is important and marketing is important, but you actually you know, have to have something where people say, this is amazing. I'll keep paying for it. In the COVID year of our COVID crisis in 2020, in startup land, we got to see which startup software solutions were critical 
and companies said, we have to keep paying for this and we'll buy more. And which software solutions were not critical? And they say, we don't really need this. We can cut it. So, you know, you got to keep making the cut in the SaaS software world. So it puts the emphasis on customer success versus software sales. The Knowledge Institute's done a fair amount of research on medium-sized, large companies, how to compete with the so-called digital stars, compare and contrast. And one of the interesting areas are these platforms be able to quickly launch. We call them digital runways in you know, the shared digital infrastructure that a small outfit or a team can quickly launch and grow a business. You see it at Amazon, you see it at Google, you see it at Facebook, Apple, and you know a lot of the, the companies we work with, whether it's clients or just people who are consuming our research, that's something they really thirst for. What could a corporate larger company do to embrace these SaaS startup concepts and maybe grow them themselves? You can't play the same innovation game that a little tiny startup can, which is experimenting for two years, not making traction until they find the thing, operating in the little corners, dealing with small numbers first. Uh, it's hard for big companies to throw money at it and experiment and give the space to, to play the game there. And so just that scrappy startup thing that, by the way, like 90% of startups don't make it big. So the experiments are getting cold in the uh, startup process. So it's hard to play that go off and experiment game inside big companies. So I wouldn't recommend they play that. The converse of what I said earlier is that it's easier to start a software company and there's a lot more bootstrapping or efficiently funded you know, companies. There are opportunities that actually take investment and scale and industry presence, data, the levers of bigger companies. So that's generally how I would say that big companies can compete. They can start with the scale, a large customer base, the data, the infrastructure, and so forth. The kinds of things that uh, a scrappy entrepreneur can't build on its own for a million dollars or something like that. So the lesson for both entrepreneurs and big companies is you think you know the answer, there's a market problem, you want to jump in there. It's going to take longer than you think to get there and to run the experiments and to find out what scales and keep going. So just have the patience on both sides. Entrepreneurs are impatient and the ones who have succeeded are the ones who've been doing it for a long time, you know, and got through the game. Didn't die along the way. That is something that we've seen that people are carrying the lunch pail to work. They're doing the hard, hard yards, but there is an impatience and a sense of extreme urgency whether they're in a large company fearing for the next Netflix over their shoulder or a small company thinking they'll asphyxiate with lack of funding. Can you talk about how to channel that aggressiveness or impatience into positive output? It's something I have to deal with with founders. This, this is not just a whiteboard exercise, innovations over here in big companies, and then you do this. You know, it's a real game. The little bootstrap companies have to survive. They have to make cash flow. Otherwise, they don't get the right to keep going. So survival is real for big companies and for small companies. And that innovation experiment game is also required and real. We're going to do 10 big things this quarter, add these features, try this marketing campaign. They're not all going to work. And uh, the game is going to change as you do it. So you have to survive long enough to scale. One of the reasons I advocate for most founders who are just getting into the game, getting a little traction and revenue to not raise too much money because that creates more impatience than the cash flow game. You can be lean and you can, you know, hang out a long time. It's hard to kill a little software company. But if you get funding and you don't grow to those expectations, right, you'll get a bullet, you know, serious funding. 
institutional funding that requires the growth. And that's generally a more impatient member of your team than, you know, keeping your service business going while you run the experiments to get your product business. So it actually is an advantage for large companies. They actually have a day job and a real business over here and they could spend money and run experiments, but they're not used to running experiments and saying, none of those things work this year, we'll try again, right? They're just not used to running those experiments. So it's just a mentality of innovation. I've talked to over 2000 founders in the last five years and everybody sees their, has their vision and their growth game. And it's always, harder and takes longer than they thought for the smartest ones. It's never easier. Still looking for an entrepreneur, most savvy, most funded that said it got there faster and easier than we thought it would. So having the patience to run the experiments and still play the game and not run out of cash is a big deal. All right. So that's a, it's a real nugget. It's taken longer than even the best from working with 2000 of these entrepreneurs. What are some other nuggets or insights that you can share, especially that made the difference? If I could put one billboard out there that entrepreneurs and starting, you know, if you're starting something in a medium-sized company, big company, starting a new category of music or whatever, is if you want to be big, you start in the corner. Nothing ever moves fast in the beginning being everything to everybody. And we all look at everything to everybody companies. Infosys does a lot of things for a lot of people now. Amazon does a lot of things for a lot of people. But if you go back to the beginning, they did one thing for one crowd. And then that's where the acceleration comes. And they could have done anything for anybody. It's not obvious and it's counterintuitive. Jeff Bezos looked at 17 industries of things he could put in a box and he chose just books. And he didn't say anything about those other boxes until five years later, where he totally dominated a market and he just started adding slowly. That's a universal law. It cannot be defied. I've never seen it defied. Show me a big company. I'll show you it in their growth spurt. They were the best, known as the best, at something important for someone specific. And it wasn't obvious. It looked crazy at first. Whether it's McDonald's hamburgers or Donald Trump or Facebook, they started in the corners. And so what is that corner is the startup question, where you can have the most product market fit, the most acceleration. And so it's just really hard for entrepreneurs and everybody else to say, but we could do it for everybody. Focus is the answer. Specialization is the answer. And when you say things like niches or the rest, everything starts out as a niche, whether it's hamburgers. Hamburgers are 50% of the fast food industry in the United States. And it started out in a corner. So it's always crazy in the beginning. And so how do you make it less crazy? You start in the corners and you get undue leverage by focusing. What is one thing? that large companies aren't aware of that is essential for them to be able to do this going forward, to take advantage of SaaS and to create these new offerings and capabilities that they might be overlooking? Other than buying companies that are in their space and right, that have already gotten up by the final, final winners and you know, adding that to their quiver and making those changes. If they want to really get started in a, a new market, they have to be a lot more comfortable with the crazy experiments, not knowing the answer and taking more time to get there. That's just the nature of the startup world. 80% of these companies are not going to make it big. And most of the experiments are not run. So to get more control of your future, accept less control. Yeah. And put it in a corner, right? Don't screw up your day job and your main business and your Six Sigma and the real factory, but you actually have to give space to crazy people to run the experiments. And many of them are going to be threatening to your current business. And, you know, that's the, 
that's a challenge. I totally get it. That's why large companies uh, struggle with innovation. What's a large company that doesn't struggle with innovation? Look at Amazon. They give space. They give time. Jeff Bezos calls it the wandering, right? You don't know the answer yet. There's something over there. We don't know the answer. We're going to try a bunch of stuff. And it's hard for entrepreneurs who think they have the answer, but they just don't die to be able to create something. They actually have the space to go run a bunch of experiments. And anything that's new is running experiments. Startups are experiments. Speaking of startups, what's the one thing that either someone in the trenches today that's trying to get a software company going, or even that business school or engineering student who is trying to tinker on the side and really wants to launch, what is one thing that you'd leave with them to give them something to think about? Other than it's going to be way harder than you thought, and it probably won't work, but there is a chance. You know, that's what all of us are doing in this game. Generally speaking, it's don't quit your day job until you've run the experiments and you've got the flywheel going in your new startup. Most people think they have the idea. This is related to lean startup concepts and other things like that that were around before that. It's not as obvious. The bigger trick is not making the software. It's getting customers, revenue, and growth that's consistent. It's hard, but it's not the hard part of a growth company. Getting customers, revenue, and growth consistently and ongoing is the bigger challenge for almost all startups and software companies that are getting growing. You talk about the scaling point system. What exactly is that? Well, it's like I said, it's laws of nature. I didn't create any of these, but it's just really hard to see when you're in the firefight running a company. Most founders and uh, startups and early stage companies, it's a race, it's tactics, it's survival, it's experiments. So it's adding salespeople and culture and talent and email and systems and all that stuff that takes up the day, you know, more of everything until it doesn't work. That's one of the reasons they hit a plateau, something deeper is going on. And the scaling point system is a universal strategy framework that takes in a little bit of positioning and product market fit and all of that and very simple so founders can see it and they can make a strategic move to create specialization and focus either in what they deliver or who they serve or how they do it. So that's where the growth game in the long run is built. It's not emailing harder or adding salespeople faster. It's accelerating with the right customer doing the right things, even though you could make anything. You could sell it to anyone. You could be anything. Acceleration comes from that one crowd and that one thing for them that is amazing to them. And so that's the challenge in the middle of the firefight. So the scaling point system brings that out and creates the, the marketing leverage that they need to keep on growing. How do people find you online? Well, the simplest way is to go to my website, greghead.com, G-R-E-G-H-E-A-D. And you can find my LinkedIn and learn about Scaling Point and see where Greg's, you can go to gregslist.com and find me there. And I'm on LinkedIn as well, so uh, people can connect with me. And if they're founders or leaders that are dealing with these kind of issues, uh, they can reach out to me and we can have a quick call. That's where Greg's list came from. Is I was having hundreds of whiteboard discussions and mentor calls and deep coffees and you know, with uh, hundreds of entrepreneurs and realizing there was way more of them than anybody else could see. So I'd enjoy meeting and you know, offering perspective to entrepreneurs uh, who want to reach out. Yeah, it's an amazing list. I think, especially if you live in one of those cities, you just don't realize the depth and breadth of tech talent around you. You can find details on, on everything we talked about on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Very interesting discussion. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. 
Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Christine Calhoun, Carrie Taylor, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.